I've been told I'm supposed to say who I am. <laughs> and my name is Kevin Livingston, and I teach at the seminary. In telling the story of Jesus, each of the gospel writers start out a bit differently. Matthew, so concerned to speak about the Jewish nature of our Lord, begins by tracing the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham, the, the very founding father of God's covenant people Israel. Luke begins very differently with angelic visitors and announcements and crowds of people at the birth of Jesus, such a cast of characters, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna. But then Luke, later on, reaches even farther back to trace Jesus' lineage all the way to Adam, the very first man. This thing's moving on me. I'm not sure. You know, this is very odd to give a Presbyterian a music stand, but I'll preach from it. Of course, Mark, Mark is always in a hurry. Uh, so he skips right over the birth of Jesus and dives into the story of Jesus, the fully grown man, being baptized at the River Jordan by John, where he inaugurates his gospel ministry. But our reading today from John's gospel takes us even earlier than all those incidents, all the way back to the very beginning. In John's gospel, the preparation for Christmas begins in eternity past. From John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. When Irene and I were in Rome a few years ago, one of the highlights of our trip there was visiting the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. That's where Michelangelo's famous fresco is painted high up on the ceiling. And if you look straight up, you, you catch a glimpse of all those amazing scenes. You know, God touching Adam's hand and such. But you could only do that for about a minute or so before your neck started to hurt because looking up like this, craning your neck up, was a painful experience. But there were a few enterprising people who had brought along mirrors about the size of this sheet of paper. <laughs> and they solved the problem 
of getting stiff necks by looking around down into the mirror from which they could view the wonders of Michelangelo's ceiling, never having to look up. Now, friends, in a way, that's exactly what Jesus Christ makes possible for us. He is a mirror who helps us see God. Jesus, the visible Son of God, reflects perfectly to us what the invisible God is really like. In Christ, we see God. And that's the message of Christmas. That's Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the irrefutable message of the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. Over the centuries, this has been one of the deepest mysteries of our faith. And one of the most challenging truths for skeptics to swallow. But it's at the very heart of what we confess as Christians. Jesus is like a mirror reflecting the very being and person of God to us. These 18 verses, sometimes called John's prologue in John chapter 1, center on the first great theological debate in the church. Namely, was Jesus divine or was Jesus human? Was Jesus God or was Jesus one of us? And John's answer to that question is a resounding yes. <laughs> it's not either or, it's both and. Jesus is fully God, fully human. It's that simple, it's that deep and the answer to that question, was Jesus God or was Jesus human, begins to take shape in John's prologue in the very first verse by identifying Jesus as the Word, the Logos in Greek. And in using that term, by making that connection, Jesus is the Logos, we have here one of the highest reaches of New Testament thought. John's prologue is a pinnacle of New Testament Christology. In fact, studying this text can be kind of scary for a preacher. I once heard the, 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 the New Testament scholar Dale Bruner say that he was reticent to even approach this text because he said, it's like climbing Mount Everest. There's so much to take in. From the heights of this prologue of John, you get this magnificent theological view, but the air is thin, and it becomes a somewhat dizzying, heady experience. You kind of feel like you might even pass out. And I would agree, this text is a little overwhelming. In the beginning was the Word, John says. But what's that supposed to mean? What many commentators point out is that that word logos, that word word, is a term that did double duty in the first century. It did double duty because logos or word was a term that both Jews and Greek-speaking Gentiles used. And when John was wrestling with how do I express who Jesus really is, he uses a term that both Jews and Greeks could understand, that both God's covenant people 
and the larger Gentile world could grasp. And even though the worlds of the Jews and the Greeks were different in so many ways, that single term, logos, the word, had deep meaning for both of them, for both groups. So first of all, how would Jewish people have heard and understood this word in John's prologue? Of course, they would immediately think of their scriptures, the Old Testament. Remember how Genesis says in the beginning, God spoke creation into being by the power of his word, and God said, and it was so. For Jews, a word was more than just a sound our mouths made. A spoken word had power. It did things. It was alive with the voice of Almighty God. Before the beginning, there was nothing, just the sound of silence. But then the silence was broken when God spoke and creation came into existence. And I think even today, words still have great power. The Presbyterian writer Frederick Beekner has put it like this. He says, by my words, I both discover and create who I am. By my words, I elicit a word from you. Through our conversation, we create each other. When I say I love you, writes Beekner, there is love where before there was only ambiguous silence. In a sense, I do not love you first and then speak it, but only by speaking it do I give it reality. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, not true. Words have been and still are a source of power. They shape our understanding. They help create reality. That's what the Jews believed long ago. Now you probably noticed if you've looked through that whole prologue of verses 1 to 18 uh, that you have to read through the entire prologue before you encounter the name of Jesus. But as soon as you read it, you begin to see that's precisely who this passage is about. In fact, Jesus himself is the Word, and that's where a devout Jew in Jesus' day or in our own would flinch. The idea that Jesus was the very Word of God would have been nothing less than blasphemy to our Jewish friends. From a Jewish perspective, there's no way the Son of Mary could have eternally pre-existed as God. There's no way this backwoods Nazarene could be divine with God from day one. There's no way a Jewish carpenter could be the co-creator, the agent, the cause of creation. All of which John's prologue asserts. But what John is trying to get across here to us is that there is an absolute otherness about Jesus. That in Christ we encounter a reality that lies beyond time and space. John is saying that Jesus is nothing less than Almighty God. Jesus, as the Word, is all that God has to say. Try listening to this text with Jewish ears. 
God spoke and all creation came into being. Okay. But God spoke and the word became flesh. (laughs) That means the man, Jesus, is God's speech, God's message. That God would communicate in the vernacular of human flesh. It's impossible. But as one writer has put it, God never seems to weary of trying to get himself across to his people. When creation doesn't seem to say it right, sun, moon, and stars, all of it, God tried flesh and blood. The word became flesh in Jesus Christ in order to communicate God to us. And Jesus says perfectly all that God is. Nothing gets lost in the translation. Now that's not always the case. Other times when borders are crossed into a different culture, something gets lost in translation. If you've ever learned another language, you know that. For example, a couple of years ago when the Kia commercial started marketing their new car in North America, How many of us figured that the South Korean car maker had overlooked another connotation? Kia, K-I-A. In the American military, a term for killed in action. (laughs) Something's a little lost in the translation. Or when, when Kellogg's brand buds were first marketed in Sweden. Now, Rebecca, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. The translation, literally, of Kellogg's brand buds meant something like burned farmer. which is not a particularly appetizing sound for a breakfast cereal. Or the classic example is the car, the Chevy Nova. Uh, In Spanish, of course, uh, the word Nova means no go. It doesn't work. It doesn't go. Does anybody want to buy one of those cars, the cars that Nova? Right, Catalina? Yeah. Something definitely got lost in the translation. But when God crossed the border from heaven to earth, when God entered human culture, human history, when the eternal word became flesh in Jesus, nothing was lost in the translation. Jesus is the autobiography of God, the authorized version. Jesus is all that God has to say. He's communicated the heart of God to the world in a way that no one and nothing else can. So John understood that the good news of Jesus emerged out of Judaism and he tried to speak God's message in a way that the Jewish ears could understand. But remember, John also wanted, seemed to understand that Christianity was destined for the whole world, for the predominantly Greek world, for a Gentile audience as well. So let me just for a moment get the Greek background on the table, too. It's not like the Greeks could handle what John does with the concept of the word any better than the Jews did. When John wrote, in the beginning was the word, he was using a technical term that was loaded with meaning, influenced not just by what the Old Testament says, but also by Greek thought and philosophy as well. Remember, that word, word, Logos does double duty in the ancient world. When the Greek philosophers looked at the ebb and flow of the tides, 
when they saw the sun rise and set every day, when they saw the changing, recurring rhythm of the seasons, they had one question. How is it in all this change that there is order in our world instead of absolute chaos? And their answer was logos, the word, the eternal principle of the universe. The Stoic philosophers taught that the word, the logos, was the divine essence, the very, the very mind of God, this divine reason operating in nature, guiding and directing and controlling and sustaining the universe. Do you sense then how the idea of the word becoming flesh would have been absolutely unthinkable to the Greeks as well? One particularly influential way of thinking that was popular in the Greco-Roman world was Gnosticism. The Gnostics in the first and second centuries believed that spirit was good, physical matter like our bodies were evil. The more ethereal things were, the more spiritual, the more non-material, the better. So as they read this text, their concern would be, what's the word doing becoming flesh and corrupting itself like that? The Greeks could have accepted a very spiritual Christ, an impersonal reason, a mind, a disembodied idea, a ghost, a spirit. But what do you do when the Logos becomes a person? What do you mean that God has a body now? What do you mean that a physical Jesus is what God thinks is the idea or reason or meaning behind the universe? The infinite God communicating into the vernacular of finite human flesh, just like ours, just like ours. How absurd, they said. But that, says John, is precisely what happened. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. In theological language, we call that the incarnation, the, literally the enfleshment of God. The incarnation is about God's relentless commitment to make Himself and to make His love known to His creation from the very beginning. When our spiritual blindness... And when our spiritual deafness called for a more penetrating, more decisive word, God came in the flesh and lived among us. He lived among us. That's the sum total of John's perspective on Christmas. Blink and you'll miss it. The older versions say he dwelt among us. Technically the word is he tented, he, he tabernacled echoing that Old Testament description of God as a movable, mobile presence going with His people, journeying with them through the wilderness. He lived among us. In the Cotton Patch version of John's Gospel, the southern preacher Clarence Jordan updated the meaning of the word dwelt when he tells us of the God who has parked His trailer right next to ours. <laughs> Or the message translation, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Make no mistake, says 
the Gospel of John. It was God who lived among us in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the audible, visible word who expressed the heart of the invisible God. The great third century theologian Origen had a great analogy. He told of a village with a huge statue, so huge you couldn't see the top of it. So immense you couldn't exactly grasp what it was meant to represent. Finally, someone in the village miniaturized the statue so one could see the person it was honoring. And Origen said, that is what God did in his son. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that Christ is the, is the self-miniaturization of God, the visible icon, the, the image of the invisible God. In Christ, we have God in a comprehensible way. In Christ, we have God's own personal definitive visit to planet Earth. Let me close. A few years ago, a deputy sheriff whose name was Lloyd Prescott was teaching a class in the public library of Salt Lake City in Utah. And at one point that day, Deputy Sheriff Prescott stepped out in the hallway for a break from his seminar, and immediately, being the police officer that he was, he noticed a man with a gun herding hostages into the next room, 18 men and women who had been taken prisoner by this crazed gunman. True story. And with a flash of insight, Prescott who happened that day to be dressed in his civilian clothes, he was teaching a seminar in the library, Prescott, dressed in his civilian clothes, stepped in line and followed the other 18 hostages into the room, and the door was shut and locked behind them. And after a time, as these gunmen are so prone to do, he became more and more agitated and began to announce publicly over the loudspeaker of the library and into that room the order in which the hostages would be executed if his demands were not immediately met. And at about that point, Officer Prescott identified himself as a sheriff, and in the scuffle that ensued, Prescott in self-defense fatally shot the armed man. And when it was finally over, all the hostages were freed and released unharmed. My brothers and sisters, that story of Deputy Sheriff Prescott has some of John's Christmas in it. Because God entered our world in the very same way. When God became a human being like Deputy Prescott, he was dressed in his street clothes. He entered the fray. He joined all of us. He came in solidarity with us who are held hostage by sin and death. And in the end, he defeated the evil one. Defeated him on the cross and in the resurrection, he freed us all from the power of death itself. Wow. But the point of John's prologue is that he could not have done this without having been born, without the word becoming flesh, without becoming one of us. 
the Word became flesh and lived among us. God came to us in the infant baby Jesus, all messy and crying with diapers and wrapped in the regular, ordinary stuff of life at Christmas at, at Bethlehem. And yet he also came as the very Word of God incarnate with the power and will to save and free his people. If that's not worthy of praise and worship, I don't know what is. Oh, Father, at this season of the year, when we remember the awesome mystery and the wonder of the incarnation, when you took upon human flesh and became one of us, may it move us to renewed wonder and praise and adoration and thanksgiving to the glory of your holy name. Amen.